As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The massive undertaking around the state to vaccinate some 400,000 healthcare workers from the coronavirus is about to become even more challenging. The distribution of the vaccine has become a major hurdle for the state. The most extraordinary scientific, industrial, and medical features. As the U.S. lags behind its goal, countries around the world are ramping up their efforts to inject more planes landed in JFK on Christmas Day than people got vaccines in New York City. What a disgrace that is. As global COVID-19 cases soar and hospitals see record numbers, efforts to distribute the COVID-19 vaccine around the world are rolling out slower than promised. So where does that leave us here in Wisconsin? Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. It is our first episode of the new year. The CDC says Wisconsin has received fewer doses of the COVID-19 vaccine than other similarly sized states and is lagging behind other Midwest states in vaccinating healthcare workers and first responders. And Amanda, just this morning as I was listening to uh, members of a state vaccine advisory committee talk about this, they said we're at about roughly 10% of that first group phase 1A of, of healthcare workers and long-term care workers and residents. Um, so while they're well into discussing what sort of where this whole thing goes next. The rollout so far here in Wisconsin has not been, I think, as quick as they had been hoping. No, and I think they're, that that's surprising to a lot of members of the general public because if you know healthcare workers, if you've been seeing on social media people posting getting their vaccination, you might be under the impression that most of our healthcare wor- workforce by now is vaccinated. And, and that's just not true. So it's not even close. While we're still talking about who's next to get in line after healthcare workers, we still have quite a ways to go in terms of getting healthcare workers vaccinated. Now, the good news is, while nationwide and, and globally we're talking about increased COVID-19 cases and problems with hospitals filling up, we're not seeing that happen here in Wisconsin. In fact, we've seen hospitalizations go down and our case numbers are, are well below their November peak. So at least there's a, a glimmer of good news here in the Badger State. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in Wisconsin, we saw a pretty dramatic peak in, in both cases and hospitalizations and, of course, deaths uh, this fall. And that's when we were doing all of these stories on the huge prison outbreaks. And, and there were so many concerns that hospitals were reaching their peak capacity in terms of treating people in the ICU with COVID-19. We, we did the story where we were uh, allowed into 
an ICU in uh, Madison at UW Health where they have expanded or at the time had expanded to 11 wings. And they said, we don't have more wings for these COVID uh, intensive care patients. Well, hospitalizations here are down about 50% from what they were at that time. They're still higher than they were at their peak in the spring. So it's not like things have gone away. We're still, I think, double what we were, maybe even triple what we were last spring uh, around May uh, and, and late April. But it's, you know, half of what it was just a, a couple of months ago. Case-wise, the, the, the cases here in Wisconsin have dropped dramatically, down 80% from the November peak, but still a number that if you had given told us there were 1,100 or 1,400 new cases in a day in July, you would have said, that's crazy. So the numbers are much lower than they were because we were so bad this fall. There, there is, this certainly hasn't gone away, but I think... Uh, we talked about this a little bit before we got started, Amanda. There's the potential that because we had this big surge and outbreak here, it may help Wisconsin sort of get through the winter if our peak came a little earlier than some other places that are obviously dealing right now with the combination of, of being in the thick of winter and, and cases soaring. And that is happening in a lot of other places. And the interesting thing, when we, when we talk about cases as related to the distribution of the vaccine, I've talked to some physicians and researchers who say, you know, a, a higher number of cases while the vaccine is being distributed, on one hand, could make it more difficult to make sure that this vaccine is effective, right? Because if you're rolling this out very, very slowly, and if we're operating under the assumption that vaccinated people can still spread COVID-19 because we don't have all the research to be able to definitively say the vaccine stops the spread of COVID-19, then if cases are, are still high at that point, that can be an issue when it comes to the spread of the virus. On the other hand, if cases are high, it can also show us how effective that vaccine is being. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. And we and it's so early right now to know how effective this is because even those who have gotten the first dose haven't necessarily received their second doses yet. So we're very, very early on in the administration of the vaccines here in Wisconsin in particular uh, before we have any idea sort of what kind of effect that's going to have. The drop we've seen in Wisconsin, and let's be clear, has nothing to do right now with the vaccine. Um, so few people have received it in Wisconsin compared to the general population, and, and almost none have received their second dose, or very, very small numbers, uh, that we aren't seeing the impacts of the vaccine in Wisconsin yet. That's going to come, obviously, later on. But I think it's a concern for many that the rollout has been as slow as it has. And that's there are multiple reasons for that. I mean, one of them is the state isn't receiving the number of doses it expected to receive from Pfizer and Moderna. And, and, and so in the sort of subsequent rounds of distribution, they're not getting as many as they expected. I think the numbers update later today. So by the time this podcast is published, there may be new numbers out and I don't know what they'll be, but there's an expectation. It may be, let's choose a round figure, might be around 200,000 doses will have been received in Wisconsin, but nowhere near that many have been administered. I think at this point, the latest I saw is maybe around 50,000 um, actual sticks in arms. And, and again, those are first doses. So the first round, phase 1A, is about a half million people nurses, uh, you know, healthcare workers, long-term care residents, skilled nursing facility residents, um, that's a half million people. So if there's 50,000 who've gotten the first dose, that's 10% of the very first highest priority phase. And we're well into discussions about where we go with 
the next phase, which is highly controversial in and of itself and and uh, involves a lot higher number of people. Well, and I want to talk about that next phase, Brian, because you're coming into this episode fresh off of uh, watching a meeting about that. So where do we stand now with deciding who's in this next phase, the so-called phase 1B? Well, we've been following this throughout the last couple of months. The The State Department of Health Services has a uh, state disaster advisory, medical advisory committee that advises DHS and ultimately the governor on uh, you know various policies. And in this case, they have a vaccine advisory committee, a subcommittee of, of, of SDMAC that meets regularly. And they've been talking about this very issue. How do we distribute the vaccine in the way that's most feasible and efficient, but also the most ethically sound. Who should get the doses first? So they went along with uh, essentially federal guidance on that for the first phase 1A round, which was to say healthcare workers, long-term care residents, we start with the people in skilled nursing facilities and hospitals, and then we work our way through the rest of that, which is something they're still doing. Um, They also added in EMS workers. We talked some about that. EMS workers who are having that face-to-face medical contact, they're included in 1A. The challenge for many of them is they don't vaccinate. They have to go to someone who vaccinates and, and there's limited doses. So if you're a hospital who has only so much for your own staff and you, you know, are you going to reach outside your walls to help the, the EMS uh, folks in your community? Um, they've tried to incentivize that. But again, that's that phase 1A process. Now they're trying to transition into phase 1B. What comes next? When we're done with 1A and we don't yet know what the gating criteria will be for that, how will they decide when it's time to go to 1B? But when they do, they want to be ready with a plan. And this is where it's gotten messy. We talked uh, before the holidays about, uh, you know, just the discussion of where they'll draw the line on things like frontline essential workers who are frontline essential workers. Um, Should they come before people who are over the age of 75, for instance, who are the ones most likely to have severe illness or die from the disease? Um, Right now, it looks like they've got people age 75 and older at the top of the list for phase 1B. Uh, And then from there, it gets a little trickier and messier. I've got a a printout here, and I've got to pull it up again. The, The vaccine subcommittee laid out a prioritization table of 13 different groups, and they just asked the members of this committee to rank them as far as, you know, priority within 1B. Which is easier said than done. Absolutely, and in some cases controversial. And if you can bear with me, I'll try to pull this up. So when I look at the the, the way they rank things, groups 75 and older, top of the list, that's about 420,000 people in the state of Wisconsin. So that is almost as many people as in the entire phase 1A. But that's the very first group at the top of the list in phase 1B. First responders who weren't a part of that uh, that phase 1A, you know, EMS first responders, so other police and firefighters and so on, are high up in phase 1B. After that come education workers, and, they, and there was some discussion here because they talked about K through 12 is what they were really focusing on. That's about another 140,000 uh, teachers and support staff around the state. And in particular, they're looking at those who are doing the in-person education or will be in the near future because a lot of schools are talking about the pressures to get back in the classroom, even for those that are doing fully virtual right now. Uh, But there was some controversy over whether they should extend that beyond secondary into colleges and universities because that adds in a whole other group. Should they include, if they do that, just college professors who are teaching in class, should they include the support staff at colleges and universities, which dramatically expands the numbers? And that's still just the top three out of 13 groups. So already they're talking another six or 700,000 people 
in those first three. And, and then, Amanda, probably the most uh, controversial subject that came up in the discussion this morning was where to place people in corrections. Um, correctional workers, it's only about 7,500 of them. They were pretty high on the list. We know that they are exposed to populations that have had some real issues with outbreaks. There wasn't much controversy there. The controversy became, what about the prisoners themselves and local jail inmates um, who are more transient but carry a lot of disease? Where do they rank in this? If you're just looking at the issue of where's the disease and, and how do you, uh, you know, most sort of wisely vaccinate and try to prevent spread, they go higher on the list. But if you start to ask that question of, well, wait a minute, should people who've committed crimes be jumping in line ahead of public transit workers, grocery store workers, food and agriculture workers, um, that becomes more controversial. And that's not resolved. That's one of the things they're still discussing and debating as they try to formulate phase 1B. Well, and that's going back to operating under the assumption that we ha we have to operate under, which is that if you get the vaccine, we need to assume that you can still spread COVID-19 because we don't have all the data on, on how the vaccine affects the spread. I'd imagine if you only vaccinate the correctional workers, but you don't vaccinate anyone else in those facilities, that we then have to assume those correctional workers can still take the virus home to their families and spread it in their communities. And that would be the concern there about the spread, right? Well, and that's that's an interesting question you bring up. It could be probably a whole podcast in itself to talk about that question of do these vaccines, will the vaccines prevent spread in addition to uh, preventing serious illness? We know the data show and the FDA's discussions of this have shown that the, the vaccines approved so far for emergency use, Moderna and, and, and uh, Pfizer, that they prevent severe illness, that they're effective at preventing uh, serious hospitalizations and, and deaths. It's less clear whether they have uh, the same impact or, or the same effect on the spread of the virus itself that causes those diseases. But in the discussions I've been listening to, while they don't have enough data to say definitively that it does, the sort of prediction and assumptions early on are that it will have an impact on spread. They just don't have the definitive data yet. But when you're in the medical field and in epidemiology, you don't rely on things like it looks like and we think so. You right. rely on data. And so the assumption right now until enough data comes in to prove this one way or the other is people can still spread it when they have the vaccine. That's why and there's continued mask use and social distancing right. being advised, even if you've been vaccinated. Right. And, and, and until there's more definitive data, that will continue to be the case. So, yeah, you're right. If, if you're talking about the assumption that people can still spread it once they get it, this at least protects those workers, say, if you're a correctional worker, from becoming severely ill or dying because of the populations they have to work with. So I think if you are a correctional officer, you probably feel a little safer yourself going to work. It doesn't mean you can't still bring it home to your family or your community. Um, and then, of course, there's the question of with prisoners. There was someone who made a very interesting point, a member of the committee who advocates for uh, the corrections community, who said, you know, it's one thing to say that the public generally wouldn't support putting them higher on the list because, hey, why should a criminal jump uh, my family member who is, say, a frontline public transit worker and, and is dealing with the public every day? Um, but she said, I hear from the public as well, and that is members of the public who have loved ones in prisons. And 
their perceptions change once they have someone they know or love who's in one of these facilities. The public uh, uh, you know, response there is obviously overwhelmingly in favor of doing something to protect their loved ones who have nowhere they can go. They're in a box. And so there, there is that question of you know, vulnerability. Uh, it, it, prison populations tend to be obviously higher uh, in terms of social vulnerability. They are from minority communities, many of whom who don't have a whole lot of access to health care outside of the prison system. Some, some of them get the best health care they've ever gotten in their lives by going to prison. Um, so there is that question of, is it the most socially responsible thing to do to get them vaccinated. But again, there's that real controversy of do people who commit crimes jump jump ahead of others in line? And, and I think that's unresolved at this point. And getting the best health care of their lives in prison isn't because we have this incredible health care system in our prisons. It's because the health care situation was so bad before they went to prison that, at, you know, at least now they're getting right. regular yeah, care. No, yeah, not, not suggesting that the, the prison healthcare system is the best in the world, but saying you're right, that, that what they experience or what they have access to outside uh, of prison walls in impoverished communities or, or people with, you know, all sorts of other social vulnerabilities, it may not be that they have that kind of access. So their only chance to get a vaccine may well be at the prison or, or, or in a local jail. But again, that's understandably a very controversial thing when you start talking about those individuals of who've committed crimes leapfrogging those who have have done nothing wrong and are working in uh, other vulnerable, dangerous uh, frontline uh, jobs. So when we talk about the different phases of administering this vaccine, Brian, phase 1A is pretty easily enforceable because it's the healthcare providers themselves who are administering the vaccine to their staff members. And then, you know, if they're able, providing some of those um, doses to EMS workers, other first responders. Phase 1B, if we're talking about an age, you know, 75 and up getting the vaccine, that's pretty easy to identify. But other than that, it's not like people carry around ID cards that say, I work in a grocery store or I am this kind of essential worker. So realistically, it sounds like a lot of phase 1B isn't going to be this uh, measured rollout we've seen in phase 1A. It sounds more like it would be first come, first serve in a lot of situations. Yeah, and I think that's going to be one of the challenges. I think that the committee that that is drafting this phase 1B uh, guidance document uh, that they're still in the midst of working on, um, I think they view this as we're going to do our best to provide what we think is the smartest and most ethical and, and, and effective guidance. But once we put that out there, that's what it is. It's not law. It is not um, something that th- th- there's not a, you know, a vaccine police force that's going to go out and, and double check that, that it's being followed. And I think in a lot of cases we're seeing already around the country and around the world, vaccines that have been doled out are not necessarily being administered in the way that guidance has been, uh, has been issued. So I think there's one phase of it or one side of this, uh, which is setting out principles that make the most sense. But then there's the actual implementation. And on the implementation side, if you're a vaccinator, if you're a pharmacist, for instance, who ultimately will be a lot of pharmacies, Walgreens and CVS and others are going to be administering these vaccines as we get further along. It won't just be the local hospital Um, when they do it. Yeah. Are they going to be the vaccine police? Are they going to card people and say, do you really work at Meyer or or uh, or pick and save? Um, I, I don't know that that's going to happen. It may well be a a case where once there's enough vaccine in Wisconsin, 
frankly, the bigger question may ultimately be, how do we convince people to get the vaccine? Because we are seeing, and I'm sure you've seen this, Amanda, we are seeing all across the country, uh, there are concerns about a lot of people rejecting or turning down the opportunity to get a vaccine. They don't trust it. They don't want it. So refusal rates are are, uh, concerningly high. And there will come a time, right now, vaccine is scarce. There will come a time when vaccine is no longer scarce and the push will be, the public health push will be to just get as many people as possible to go and voluntarily get a vaccination. And we're not there yet. We're a long way from that. But this whole idea of the prioritization is really somewhat of a, you know, a, a, a guidance, maybe even in some cases a feel-good thing to say, here's what we think are the priorities. But in the long run, it's not going to matter. In the long run, and that long run could be a few months, it could be six months to a year, but but in the long run, it will be a question of there's plenty of vaccine, we just need people to get it. In the short term, it's it's like lining up to, to get out of the classroom to go to lunch when you're in elementary school. Everybody <laughs> wants to be at the head of the line and there's no line cutting, right? No line cutting. We're all getting to the lunchroom at pretty close to the same time. Um, so there's a lot of jockeying and a lot of lobbying and a lot of concern. In the end, I think you're right, though, Amanda, that it's going to be difficult to get real granular when you're out in the field administering vaccines and determining, wait, were you on the the fourth rung on the ladder or is it the sixth rung on the ladder? Maybe we should wait until this person comes in before you get it. I don't think that's going to be real likely. Well, and when you talk about refusal rates, it makes me think of something that is certainly going to be an issue down the road, and that's children and schools with the vaccine. So right now, the the available vaccines are not for children. Children were not part of that uh, original trial, and that's usually how it works when we talk about vaccine and, and medication trials. But there they are setting up trials with children right now, and once we do have that data, and then there's a, there's the vaccine rollout for children who are able to get vaccinated, then schools are going to have to figure out how do we do this? Because schools already have a really hard time getting students to show up with the already required vaccinations because there are uh, different exemptions people can take. And just tracking down every student, especially in some of the larger districts with fewer resources, is uh, is quite a bit of work. So when you look at the school vaccination rates, generally, those have been trending down. So it, it makes you wonder, and schools don't have the answers to this. We've asked them and they just, they don't know yet how they down the road will enforce Um, making sure that students get the COVID-19 vaccine if they'll make that a requirement right away. So that will be a whole different issue to grapple with. And that's a huge part of our society. It it is, although I think one of the things that's made that less of a concern early on with this is obviously we know uh, when you look at mortality and serious illness, there's a a gradient. And obviously, the older you are, the more likely you are to be vulnerable to that serious illness and death. Thankfully, children, not that they are immune to it, but the the, the numbers are far lower uh, um, among kids. So uh, that in terms of the testing of the vaccines not being on children sort of works out, at least in the short term, that those, are, those aren't the ones who are most vulnerable to serious illness and death. At some point, yeah, that will become a question. The question is by then, 
will community spread have been knocked down enough to make it less of a concern? If all the teachers are vaccinated and, and that maybe there are a number of parents who object to having their kids vaccinated, there probably will be. Will it be less of a concern? I guess that's a, a bridge we'll cross when we get there. But um, it, right now, it seems like this is is such a mess at the front end that that is uh, way off in the horizon, maybe further than we thought it would be. Um, because it, it, the real question right now seems to be, how do you even get adults to take it? You know, you look at the refusals and, and some of the objection to vaccine, probably most extreme example, Amanda, right here in, in Wisconsin, which has made, you know, international news is the pharmacist at, uh, at the Aurora hospital in Grafton who intentionally, uh, allegedly intentionally left vaccine out to spoil because we're hearing he may have been someone who felt the vaccine was, uh, dangerous or unhealthy to people and, and, uh, and, and therefore wanted to make a statement. Uh, we also Contrary know that, that to the evidence that has uh, been right, presented. Yeah. And, and we know that, you know, it, we're seeing that that particular pharmacist, uh, uh, who has been fired. I, I've heard a number of our reporters say former pharmacist, and some people have corrected. He's still a pharmacist, technically. He's licensed by the state. The state will have to take its own action, and they've opened an he investigation. He just can't practice right now. He can't practice right now because of the terms of his uh, his bail right now with the, with the court and because he was fired by uh, Aurora. But, um, but he technically still has a license. Nonetheless, the, the point of this is, in, he's going through a divorce, and we've looked at his divorce records. And you can see that he, according to his soon-to-be ex-wife, has espoused all sorts of things about, you know, the world crashing down around us, government conspiracies, planning cyber attacks, and and then has these concerns about uh, the, the vaccine. He's not alone in that, though. There are people we've seen reports of this all around the country and 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 beyond the United States, where there are these theorists, uh, some would say conspiracy theorists, about concerns about the vaccine or, or government actions and things like that, um, that's out there. And so there are a number of people who either because they have their own uh, adherence to those conspiracy theories or because they simply don't trust uh, a brand new vaccine, something that they feel was rushed. There's a lot of people who don't feel safe getting this vaccine. And the question is, will enough people get it for this to have that herd immunity effect that knocks down the virus once and for all, or at least to a level where we can get back to a more normal life. And, and that remains to be seen. Right now, it's a moot point, though, because there's not enough vaccine to go around to begin with. It will be less of a moot point when enough vaccine is distributed. Well, and the fact that there's not enough vaccine to go around to begin with is what made this case with the pharmacist, Stephen Brandenburg, so galling to a lot of people was because his intention was to allow the, the equivalent of roughly 500 doses of the vaccine to spoil. Now, whether it's up in the air right now whether him leaving them out at room temperature twice actually led the vaccine to spoil we won't know that until there's been testing on those specific vials um, but the, the way this news rolled out was really interesting because at first uh, aurora released a statement saying hey this was this was an accident they they thought it was someone unintentionally leaving this out and then upon further investigation he allegedly admitted no this this was intentional i i wanted these vaccines to become ineffective and and that's why this has led to um, the idea of criminal charges although whether there can be criminal charges a lot of that will depend on whether the vaccine doses themselves were were actually rendered ineffective 
Well, you know, you look at a lot of it, it, this goes down a whole other path. But with regard to that, yeah, the, the DA's concern is we have to be able to prove that he he damaged this property. Right. And, and if it's not spoiled, it's not damaged. So is there really a crime? With certain crimes, the intent to do so would be enough, right? The the intent to murder someone would be, you know, a, attempted homicide, but you didn't complete it. Is there like an attempted property damage? I don't know that there is. Um, so that certainly is a question legally. There doesn't appear to be any question based on what we've seen in release that this was this pharmacist's intention, that he meant to leave these out. The question is simply, has the vaccine in fact been damaged beyond use? Now, the hospital's not using it. They're not going to inject it in people any further. There were some people who got, uh, uh, we know that I think there were, what, 57 people who got vaccines or, or got injections from that batch, and they're now concerned those may have been useless. They don't know yet. Um, so that's among the things they are, they are looking into. And I think that may be, uh, no one's really talked about this, but it just strikes me as we're talking here, I wonder if that could, in fact, be a, a real liability concern for the hospital, which is if we injected 57 people with a bogus vaccine because one of our employees intentionally left it out, are we somehow on the hook? Right. Um, you know, I don't know if that's the case, um, but there, the doses have to be tested, and that will be the legal question. In the end, though, it means right now there are you know, roughly 500 people, uh, likely healthcare workers or, or um, others in that phase 1A, who aren't getting injections who otherwise could be. And, and uh, obviously for those who want the vaccine, that's a real concern. Uh, Amanda, we've obviously talked about an awful lot here today, um, and, and I think it's just it underscores how much there is to talk about right now when it comes to this. There's, we're in a new year, and I know everyone's just ready to leave 2020 in the, in, in the distant past, but we're not past all of this. There's so much more to talk about. And of course, uh, probably appropriate that in our first episode of 2021, we would have so many things to discuss. I think we have a lot more we'll be talking about in the weeks and months to come as we continue to bring you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record. We'll continue covering the COVID-19 pandemic vaccine rollout. We haven't stopped looking at issues like reckless driving, police community relations, so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss on the podcast or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News or here on the podcast, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is fox6investigators at fox.com. And as always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will talk to you again on Thursday. Thursday.